And if you're standing here with us, if you have a Bible with you, you can open it to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, we're in our third week of a new series called Genuine, Genuine, talking about who it is that God has intended you to be as He recreates you in the person of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question this morning as we begin. Are you living the good life? Are you living the good life? I think instinctively, the answer is yes, but I'd like you to take just a minute and think about uh, your perspective on life Monday through Sunday, uh, the ins and outs in the course of the day. Uh, do you live with the perspective that I'm living the good life? Uh, it's a hard question to answer. I read a, a Gallup survey from last year uh, that reported that 90% of Americans, and if anyone's living the good life, uh, it should be those who live in the affluent West, uh, at least in terms of the world standards, because we have access to so much. The Gallup survey uh, showed that 90% of Americans say they are satisfied with their life. 90%, that's a high number. I also found a study uh, done at the almost exact same time uh, by NBC News that revealed that only 14% of Americans say they are happy. And that raises the question, the the, the dichotomy between 90% on one hand saying they're satisfied with life, but only 14 saying they're happy. Uh, what does it mean to live a good life? Webster's Dictionary defines the good life this way, uh, the kind of life that people with a lot of money are able to have. So most of us are not qualified for the good life, according to Webster's. The kind of life that people with a lot of money are able to have a happy and enjoyable life. And I think that definition just underscores uh, the, the mixed mindset uh, that we have in this life of what it means to actually live a good life. And I think in part that's because it's relative uh, to what we define as good. What, what is a life that, that measures up to being good and that's different for every one of us? It's become increasingly tough to answer in the day and age in which we live because of moral relativism. There was a time where uh, we uh, determined what a good life looked like by measuring it against moral absolutes. That society is long since gone. Now everyone approaches it uh, from the standpoint that they are the God of their own lives. And because of uh, moral relativism, we kind of define for ourselves uh, what it is to live a good life. But as Christ followers, as we've been talking about in this series, the gospel, uh, the good news, has made us disciples of Jesus Christ. We are to be actively following him, not pursuing an ideal like a good life, but actively following Jesus Christ into a life that only he offers. And I'm going to suggest to you this morning, it is the only good life that is available to us. We cannot know the life that God intends for us apart from intimate relationship and following Jesus Christ. G.K. Chesterton, English writer, philosopher, and Christian apologist said, Christianity has not so much been tried and found wanting as it has been tried and found difficult and therefore left untried. Uh, we started the series in Philippians chapter 2 in verse 12 where the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. As we have been made disciples of Jesus Christ, we have become sojourners. That is, we have been delivered from this life. Our eyes have been opened to the reality that this life isn't all that and a box of chocolates. 
that we're only here temporarily, just a blink of an eye. The scripture says life is but a vapor. So we are sojourners and we're living for something more than this life. So that immediately delivers us from a worldly definition about what it means to live the good life. Entrance into the life that God offers is solely the grace work of God in us. It's initiated by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's based upon the efficacious work of Jesus Christ upon the cross on our behalf. This comes to us only by means of repentance and faith. This is where we started in the first two weeks. The only way that you and I can enter into a pursuit, if you will, of the good life, of what the scriptures consider the good life, is by repenting of our sinfulness, turning from a pursuit of a worldly definition of life, and following Jesus Christ because we trust him as the savior of our souls. This, I believe and assert, is the only good life that is available to you and I. So this morning, as we return to 2 Peter, we started with Peter encouraging us in the same way that Paul did, that we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Peter says uh, that we ought to uh, make every effort, for this reason, make every effort in verse 5, to supplement your faith with virtue. So we've come this week to virtue. We took a, we kind of slipped in repentance to talk about the ongoing necessity of repentance in our life to continue to experience what God is doing for us. I want to start with uh, verses 1 through 4. Peter writes, Simon, P- uh, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. It can't be said enough that all that God intends for you and I, when God envisioned you as a person, when, when he fearfully and wonderfully made you, everything about you becoming that person is inextricably tied to Jesus Christ. You cannot be who God intended you to be apart from walking closely with Jesus. Only he can lead you there. Peter continues, His divine power has granted to us all things, that pertain to life and godliness. Now, I want you to think about uh, the contrast between what God is offering us in Christ and what the world holds out to us. The world holds out to us this idea of a good life. And, And the good life, as we will see, is about getting on an acquisition treadmill and running and running and acquiring and acquiring. And time after time, every one of us knows this to be true. The things that we chase after and we grasp and we control are unsatisfying. They do not make a good life, which is why 90% on the one hand can say, yeah, I'm happy to be alive, but I'm not happy, 14%. Only 14% will say that. He continues, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Peter is going to challenge us that to our faith we need to add virtue. So we're going to talk this morning about what that means. But essentially in these first few verses, he's signaling to us that it's the cultivation of a life that only comes by vitally walking in relationship with Jesus Christ. So I want to give you uh, three points this morning, and this is the first. Repentance and faith are not merely the entrance into relationship with God. It's the only way to have a relationship with God, to repent of your sins and to place your faith in Jesus Christ. But it's also an invitation into a painstaking but promising journey. What does the journey look like? 
Well, Paul says it's a journey where you are working out your salvation with fear and trembling, that it's something you're continually working on. It's become the highest priority of your life to figure out how to walk closely with Christ, to figure out how to become the person that God intended you to be when he created you. And then Peter says uh, it's about recognizing that God has given you everything. He's given you all things, these many great and precious promises that are rooted in Christ. So then he says, make every effort, work diligently at adding to your faith virtue, and then on and on he goes. Plato wrote, there is an art of living, and the living is only excellent when the self is prepared in all the depths and dimensions of its being. To the degree that we as Christ followers are not happy, blessed, to the degree that we are not living the good life, it is because we have made a confession of faith in Jesus Christ, but we have a functional uh, plan for living apart from him. We don't walk with him daily. And this is what Paul, both Paul and Peter, are challenging us to, because apart from that daily walk with Christ, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Apart from us doing that over and over and over again, we will not cultivate the life that God has created us for. So today, virtue. Let me ask the question, what is virtue? Uh, let me define it first. Virtue is uh, the Greek word arete. Uh, it means vir virtue is a moral excellence, right living, or goodness. The word is also translated excellence, not as an end in itself, but as the means of edification toward others, toward God, society, and our world. Virtue is the cultivation of an, an inward kind of life that just oozes out of us naturally. This is intended to be the life of Jesus Christ. This is why Paul continually tells us, I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who, who loved me and gave himself for me. So each one of us, as we walk with Christ, he is cultivating something in us that as it oozes out of us is for the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ, for the community in which we live, and for the world that desperately needs to see good news. To have that means that it, it's internal. That, that something uh, external to us, the person of Christ and his work for us, becomes deeply rooted in us. It's cultivated inwardly before it's expressed outwardly. And this means we have to distinguish between value, that's something we ascribe worth to, versus something that is happening inside of us. The world's approach to the good life is to place value on things that are external to me and then tell myself, if I could just have those. If I could just chase after those, if I could just get the college degree, if I could just get my high school sweetheart to marry me, if we could just have kids, if we could have grandkids, if we could have a home, if we could have a retirement, all these things we place value on and then chase. And in the end, Solomon's going to tell us, it's all taken away. But to pursue Christ is to pursue something that you will have intrinsically forever. It's to cultivate inwardly that which he wants to express outwardly. Not as a choice, but just because it's who we are. It's genuine Christianity. It's authentic Christianity. Now, how do we delineate what virtues are? Bill Bennett, in his book uh, on virtues, lists self-discipline, compassion, responsibility, friendship, work, courage, perseverance, honesty, loyalty, faith. These are things that, that Bennett says not only benefit the, the heart of the individual who cultivates them, but they also have a positive effect on society. 
Catholics define the seven cardinal virtues as justice, wisdom, courage, moderation, then faith, hope, and love. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to a life of godliness. What is virtue? What does it mean to be a virtuous person? It's to live a life of godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, whatever is, if there's any uh, excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. These are good descriptions of what a virtuous life looks like. To think not on worldly things, to not buy into uh, the worldly invitation to chase after things that are actually ultimately empty, but to cultivate in my heart things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. But the dilemma is, though this is uh, virtue is historically important to a, a culture, to a society, the dilemma is we focus most of our time on what we want or what we ought to do instead of who we ought to be and become. The truth is the journey toward a, a virtuous life begins by recognizing that virtue is not in me. Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. It's offensive, isn't it? It's offensive to we Americans. That even your best deeds are dirty, a filthy garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Well, if you're not offended by Isaiah's words, try Paul on for size. Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verse 10 and 12, None is righteous, no, not one. Be virtuous. Do everything you can to, to add to your faith virtue, and yet it is not in us, Paul says. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, no, not even one. Our world says to the church today, you need to modify that message. That, that's not how you're going to reach people. If you want to grow the church, you, you need to soft sell that. But, but the truth is, we cannot have the life that God is offering us until we begin there. That only with Jesus Christ, He is the only way I will become righteous. He is the only way I will become virtuous because it's simply not in me. If you're offended by it, it's because you're comparing yourself to the person next to you. My wife is virtuous by comparison to me. She has a virtue all of her own. She may even seem righteous. But the problem is, God is not comparing my wife to me. He's comparing her to Jesus Christ. The standard is God Almighty. And the reason why our world desperately needs to hear this message is because we've deluded ourselves into thinking, if we can fix up the outside, if we have the look of success, if we look like we're living our best life, the good life, but we're living it apart from Christ, We've deceived ourselves. A life of virtue is only available to us in Jesus Christ. Listen, there is a stark contrast between the good life that this world is offering and the excellent life that God promises in Jesus Christ. Let me contrast Solomon and Jesus. 
Solomon, if ever the world had an individual who had all the means to try to get the best the world had to offer, to prove it out, it was Solomon. In chapter 1, verse 13 and 14 of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. You think you're dissatisfied. There's never been a wiser man than Solomon. There's never been a richer man than Solomon. And yet with all of his resources, he still finds the world unsatisfying. Even though he can have everything he wants. Verse 14, I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. See, many of us are tempted uh, to think that if we just had the resources of Solomon, then we could live the good life. Many of us buy into Webster's Dictionary that that if we just had enough wealth, because wealth enables me to fix my problems or buy them away, or at least postpone them. So many people, so many Christians, live with this idea that if I could just push problems off down the road, if I can just satisfy myself with the things of the world because I have riches, Solomon says, in the end, that doesn't work. The world's formula is for you to chase after things, to acquire them, to consume them on yourself, but in the end, to turn them over. You've heard the adage that you'll never see a U-Haul behind a a hearse. You're not taking anything with you. Uh, I remember attending a funeral in Dallas, Texas, and the casket was, it was a friend of mine, his father had passed. The casket was incredible craftsmanship. The wood was just, just incredible. Don't tell me how much it cost. On each of the four corners, there were secret compartments. Those corners came off. And inside each of those corners were sleeves of skull. Because dad liked to dip snuff. Guess what? Dad's done dipping snuff. Like, even if you can figure out how to cram it in there and take it with you, you're not going to use it. Like, when this life is over, we're taking nothing with us. This is what Solomon discovered, and he said, in the end, it's just a meaningless existence to live for those things. Is it wrong to enjoy good? No, God created us to enjoy the world he made. But the problem is, as Paul says in Romans 1, is the subtle temptation to begin worshiping the creation instead of the creator. I don't know if you've noticed, that's an issue here. It's a strong temptation for every single one of us because the world that God made is beautiful and we like to be distracted from the problems of the world. But Solomon says, if that's the path that we choose in the end, we will find it's meaningless. By contrast, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, because they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who are reviled and persecuted Uh, who have uh, evil uttered against them for my name's sake, uh, for they will have reward. Notice the contrast. Solomon is talking about pursuing a life that satisfies me. 
Jesus is speaking about the reality of the world in which we live. Instead of uh, chasing and acquiring and consuming on ourselves only to have to turn it over in the end, Jesus is saying, why don't you just embrace reality? Embrace reality. Life is hard, but God is good. You're not going to get through this life. Not a single one of us, I don't care how much money you have, the richest man in the world is eventually going to be crushed by, the, by his own mortality, by something that's going to strike his life and brings it to an end. Jesus says, em- embrace reality. And in the midst of reality, reality, suffering, mourning, look to God. Look to God and learn and receive and become what only he can do through the hardness of this life. And you know what that leads to? Not meaninglessness, not emptiness. It leads to eternal life. It leads to an eternal life where we have become prepared in all, as, as Plato said, in all of the ways uh, that lead us to the life that God is drawing us to. The Beatitudes illustrate from an immediate setting the present availability of the kingdom of God through personal relationship with Jesus Christ. What happens when a storm comes in your life? What happens when you feel like you're shipwrecked? Are you on your own? Are you, are you full of despair? You don't even want to think about it, do you? What happens when you get a diagnosis that at the very least signals a long journey ahead, if not the end? Are you without hope? Well, if you're living by the world's standards, if you're living according to the world's definition, then very likely, yes, you've come to the miserable end. But if you're walking with Christ, if you're being prepared, uh, if, you've, if you're coming to cultivate a, a life of virtue, then you will recognize that even in the darkest moments, there's an invitation to look to God. And He can do in me what He desires to do. Whether that's lead me through mourning, uh, whether that's uh, leading me through suffering, or whether it's leading me through great victory, it is Christ who is leading my life and not myself. Virtue is a mean between two extremes, excess, as Solomon shows us, on the one hand, and deficiency on the other. Scripture says we are not without hope. We are not without hope because our faith is in one who has conquered death and the grave. And because he has been resurrected, so too we will be resurrected. Not to simply enjoy the goodness of life, but more importantly, to enjoy eternity in the presence of God. Humility between vices of arrogance and low self-esteem or no self-love. We're not talking about a different end of the spectrum. We're talking about living in the center. Jesus is full of grace and truth, and he's trying to draw us all to that place where we learn how to live as he lived, where we learn how to live uh, the Beatitudes. It means a blessed life, not just happiness. Happiness can be fleeting. But to know at any given moment, I am richly blessed. The analysis uh, is for Solomon in chapter 11, verses 9 through 12, 1. He says, rejoice, O man, in your youth. All you young people need to tune into this if you're here. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know for all these things 
God will bring you into judgment. There's not a single one of us who's not played the world's game, gotten on the acquisition treadmill. It starts in youthfulness. Like when I first felt like God might be stirring to call me to ministry, I was a senior in high school. But I had already decided I wanted to become a lawyer because I wanted to live in a gated community and go to black tie events. That's shallow, isn't it? And I thought being a lawyer would get me there. It took a little while for God to get a hold of me. We've all done it. And Solomon says, hey, I get it. I get it. You know, chase after your heart. Explore all those things that you're after. But know this, in the end, whatever you've done, you're going to account for it before God. Better to learn from Solomon how to be wise. He continues in verse 10, Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your Creator, chapter 12, verse 1, in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. When the final moment comes for you, when the final moment comes for me, you know what can't be taken from you? Oh, everything else is going to be taken. The thing that can't be taken from you? A virtuous life that you've cultivated in relationship with Jesus Christ and that has blessed everyone that you've oozed out on. This is what God is inviting us to. This is why Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We've only just begun when we yield our life to Christ. Peter says, make every effort to add to your faith virtue. So what will it look like for me to live an excellent life? Let me give you two biblical examples. John the Baptist in John chapter 3, verses 27 through 30, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Everything you gain apart from God, you've deceived yourself into thinking you got it on your own. Every good and perfect gift, everything that comes into our life as a grace or a blessing comes from the hand of our good God, from heaven itself. He continues, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Get this, this uh, therefore this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase And what? I want everybody to say it. He must increase. And if we rose to say that before our feet hit the floor every morning, we would be on the path to a virtuous life. I must decrease and he must increase. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 goes on in the beginning verses of that book talking about how the the life he had accomplished just by sheer discipline uh, apart from even knowing God. He had become quite reputable, uh, an up-and-comer with great promise, and then he meets Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And in chapter 3 verse 7, the Apostle Paul writes, but whatever gain I had, you think, put yourself in this place. Whatever it is you have, from the house to the cars, your family, all the recreational things, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus my Lord. This is Paul's motivation. Uh, This is the clarity of John to recognize in Jesus Christ everything that I need 
to become the person that glorifies God, and that in itself will bring me the greatest joy I could ever have. Nothing this world promises or holds compares to that. This brings me to my final point. The excellent life cannot be purchased, pursued, or possessed apart from Jesus. It must be cultivated inwardly as we walk with Christ, and then uh, it will be proven outwardly. What John and Paul show us, Jesus speaks of as a necessary trade-off. In John chapter 12, Jesus says, whoever loves his life loses it. Like if you're clinging, which we have done, we've this, this is one of the things that's happened in, in this past season. We, we've bought into, in our, in our great hubris, we bought into this idea that it's possible to eradicate death. If we could just get everybody to do the same thing, as though no one else is dying from anything but the current thing we're facing. People die every day in this life. Death is an ev- inevitable part of your entering this life. The day you were born, you had an expiration date. Only God knows it. There's nothing you can do to even add one day to it. It's coming for you. It's coming for me. There is nothing we can do to stave off death. So there's this necessary trade-off. Jesus says, if you, uh, but whoever has life in this world has eternal life. That is the life that he offers. Again, Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, whoever would save his life must lose it. Whatever your strategy is for having the life the world is offering, you have to lose it. You have to let go of it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The question is, how? The excellent life is only available in and through Jesus Christ. John goes on to say in verse 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. He just equated believing the Son with obeying the Son, but the wrath of God remains on that person. So to say that I have faith in Jesus Christ is to commit myself to a life of walking with Him to learn how to obey Him. And this, uh, the Scriptures give us two uh, metaphors, two pictures of what this looks like. The first is to be grafted into Christ, uh, to be grafted in. So uh, I have a grandfather who had quite a green thumb, and he could take just a stub of a, of, of a, of a limb, and he would cut a, a, the branch or the trunk of another plant, and he would graft that in. It's a picture of what's happened to you and I. When we've been delivered from the way things work in the world, when we've been delivered from living for this only, and he has grafted us into the life of Jesus Christ. But, but if we do not abide, that's what Jesus says in John 15, if you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. This is the necessity of you and I becoming the person we were created to be, of cultivating a life of virtue, is to continue to draw our life source from the vine. We are just branches who've been grafted in. And this is what it means, not not just to come to know Christ, but to live with Him across the course of our lives. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5 of this kind of virtuous life when he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is what it looks like for us to walk with Christ. It necessarily, as we live intimately with Him, produces in us that which the world will see as great fruitfulness. Fruitfulness that's a result of not valuing something 
and then pursuing it, but walking with Christ on a continual basis and him developing it from within so that he can pour it out. A second metaphor, not just being grafted into Christ, that's the beginning for sure, but the second metaphor is what Jesus gives us in Matthew 11, the idea of being yoked together with Jesus. Just a few weeks ago, we used this as the launching verse for the Sunday we, we uh, titled, Come to Me. That's what Jesus offers to us. Come to me. And it was not intended to be only a, a, an initial coming. It, it wasn't like going to your insurance agent and just kind of talking through all the things that you want as benefits in your insurance, signing up on a payment plan, and then never seeing your insurance agent until you need him again. That, that's not what coming to know Jesus is. It's not just about getting fire insurance for after this life is over. It's about being grafted into a kind of life we have never known before. When Jesus says, I have come to give you life and, and give it abundantly, he's telling us that there's something fundamentally about life that he knows that we can't know apart from him. So inasmuch as we've been grafted in, then he invites us to daily, continually come to him, to slip our necks into the yoke beside him, and then to walk with him. We've talked about this before. It's just such a beautiful, profound analogy of, of how an older, mature oxen who has been seasoned at the task is yoked together with a young, immature ox. And all along the way, he's wrestling against uh, the, the control, the constraint. But over time, he's learning how to do the job. So it is with you and I. Jesus is inviting us to walk with him on a daily basis, to begin in the morning, to say, Lord Jesus, I am yours, and you are mine. And in the course of this day, I want my life to decrease so that you might in me increase. Dallas Willard says, we must arrange to live with contentment, joy, and confidence in your everyday experience of life with God. If we would make every effort to add to our faith virtue, then we must know that we can only do that by walking daily with Christ. We cannot ignore him, not talk to him, not press into him, not learn from him Monday through Saturday and get a dose on Sunday and expect that we're going to wind up living virtuous lives. If we would cultivate the kingdom, as Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. The secret to that is walking closely with the king who reigns over the kingdom to yoking ourselves together with him. To be a, being a disciple of Jesus, journeying and following him in everyday life, imitating and practicing the activities of his life leads to a life of flourishing in God's kingdom. It's where the kingdom becomes a reality here in my life, in my marriage, in my family, and the more that that becomes our reality, not only will we become less comfortable living in the world, but we will look different from the way the world lives. It's the difference between training versus trying. If I had a weight bench up here with 300 pounds on it, and I asked you to just come up and bench press just one time, bench press 300 pounds, there's a few of you that could do it. My money's on AJ. I think he could do it. I couldn't. Of course, I just had two shoulder surgeries. 
Now, you, you don't do something simply by trying it. That's how you hurt your chest. <laughs> you train to do that. And I don't know what the weight limit is for you, but if, if you conditioned yourself, if you begin training, there would be some point at which you could walk up here, and it might not be 300 pounds, but you could do the job. Why? Not because you came up here and just said, I'm going to give it a try. No, it'd be because you were training yourself. None of us are going to wind up at the end of our lives and say, you know, I'm just going to try to be like Jesus. It doesn't work that way. You have to train to be like Jesus. And the way that we train is by walking with him on a daily basis, letting him show us the ropes. The reason why so many of us don't do that is because we're always in the inferior position. We've not come to terms with John saying, you know what, my job is just to decrease. I'm always going to be walking behind him. He's always going to be showing me the way. The spiritual life we, we prefer is, 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 is like a motorboat. We, would, we, we just want to take a gas in the keys and we want to leave God on the dock and say, we got it from here. Whereas, truthfully, biblically, the spiritual life is more akin to sailing. The sailor is dependent on forces outside of himself. Yes, he has to work. He has to set the sails and uh, he has to steer the boat. But he can, he can only guide himself by navigating through the stars and he needs the wind of the Spirit to push him. This is what it looks like to walk with Christ, to be utterly dependent today on what it is that he wants to do in me and through me. God is essential. Virtue isn't developed or cultivated on your own power, but in a grace-infused partnership with Jesus Christ, to the glory of God the Father and in the power of the Holy Spirit, that we might attain to those who've gone before us, like John the Baptist, who could say, he must increase, I must decrease. Or like Paul, I, I consider everything I have. The love of my wife, family he's so greatly blessed me with. Everything this world has had to offer me is refuse, apart from knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. Do you live with that kind of clarity? I ask you to bow your head for a moment. Matthew chapter 6. Verse 33, Jesus says to you, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things, faith, virtue, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit, all these things will be added to you. And you know what I've found? I've found that even the things that you might think God is not interested in, he longs to lavish on us. He is a good, good father. Do you know him? If you don't know him, can I just encourage you right now in the privacy of your own heart? Would you just take this challenge? Would you just whisper to him, God, make yourself known to me. Convince me of Jesus. I don't want the life only that the world offers. I want the blessed life. For those of us who quickly raise our hand and say, yes, that is my Jesus. I love him. He's so greatly blessed me. Can I just encourage you to ask, Lord, what is it that you, that you want to do in me now? What's the next thing that helps me become more virtuous? What do I need to let go of? What am I grasping a hold of that's not you, that's holding me back from you? Pray this, Lord, make me virtuous like Christ.
Father God, thank you for so great a salvation. Thank you for your patience that you are long-suffering. God, you've been patient with so many of us for so long. You've been patient with me. And yet, having come to appreciate your patience, I've watched how you have painstakingly um, changed my life. My confession to you today, God, uh, both in repentance of my sin and faith in Christ, is that I want to be like Jesus. I want to decrease so that you might increase in me. I want to be virtuous. I want to live for those things that glorify and satisfy you. And then, Father, I want them to spill out of me to bless my wife and my kids and the people that you've called me to pastor, to bless people I meet in this community who don't know you but who desperately need to. God, would you make your church virtuous that we might be of usefulness to you in advancing the kingdom of God as the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed. And we ask all of this.